So yesterday afternoon, I was out in my barn, and uh, I was uh, trying to put one of those buffer pads onto the sanding disc. You know how that works, you guys? You know, you, it's a home, it's a do-it-yourselfer kind of a thing, and there's a pad that goes over the disc that you can put on your drill. And uh, the reason that I was doing that was because Karen's car is now 11 or 12 years old, and the, the, the lenses on the headlights have kind of grown dim. You know how that happens? They kind of get oxidized or something. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And uh, nothing wrong with the lights. It's just they don't shine through as brightly as they did before. So you got to get all that stuff off of there. And if you take uh, like a mild abrasive like baking soda and put a little vinegar in there, you can make a paste that just gets all that stuff off of there. At least that's what the YouTube video said. And so as I was watching, well, just hang on a second, Marie. Uh, and so I, because there's this product you can buy that's like 50 bucks, you know, and it says it'll do it for you. And I said, well, I want to spend 50 bucks. So I jumped on YouTube and it says, you don't need to, you can do this. And and I noticed that these guys, they had like a hand rag, and they were working really, really hard at this. And so I thought, well, I'm smarter than that. I'll just hook up the buffer pad, right? And I'll just let the drill do the work because I'm smarter than the rest of the world. And, and when, I, when I did that, I, I put this thing on, and I, I noticed that you – I haven't done the headlights yet anyway. I spent all afternoon trying to get this thing on there, which shows you how smart I am, how much time I saved uh, – you got to put this thing on there, and then there's a string, like a little tether behind it. And you got to pull it really, really tight, or else the disc just spins, you know. And I, you just got to pull it really, really, really tight and tie it and pull it. Did you get this yet? Pull it really, really, really tight in opposite directions in order for it to be tight enough to do its work. Hold on to that illustration. We'll get to it later. Father, we just bow now as we come to the your word, uh, the Bible, and we're so grateful that you have given it to us so freely, so powerfully, so generously in our country and in our age, so many different kinds of ways we can read the Bible, and we know that at the very center of it is your inerrant truth, your truth, your truth that does not change because you are truth. And so as we come to this passage in the Bible today to talk about, we, we do so um, because we really want you to come and speak to that place in our hearts that changes us forever, makes us more useful in your hands, and gets us ready for heaven. So we invite you to come, Holy Spirit, and to be the speaker, to be the teacher, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, Lord, would be acceptable in your sight and useful in your hand now, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, my most difficult class in college was microbiology. It was tough. I mean, uh, there were some others that were hard. You know, there was quantitative analysis and, and uh, biochemistry was tough. But there was nothing harder that I encountered than microbiology. And uh, it, it, there was just something about staring into a microscope and deciding whether that was a gram-negative or positive bacteria or just classifying this endless list of microorganisms that I didn't really care that much about, to be honest with you. Um, and, and it was just hard. It was so hard that it was the only class in my college career I had to take twice. Uh, I didn't get the grade in it that I wanted to and felt like I should have since I was planning on applying to medical school later. I figured they probably want better than a passing grade in microbiology. And so I don't know if, if my grade was affected at all by the fact that on the second day of the class, our second son, Bruce, was born two months premature at three pounds, five ounces. I don't know if that had anything to do with it. 
and that they shipped him an hour and a half away to Lansing, Michigan, to a neonatal intensive care unit. I don't know if that had anything to do with my studies that semester with going back and forth for six weeks while Bruce was in the hospital and then bringing home a little four-pound baby. Probably not. (laughs) In retrospect, I should have just taken a leave of absence for the semester, but no, that's not the way we do it at our house. We just soldier on through. It was a tough course. It was a tough course. And even taking it the second time, which I did much better in, I, 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 I discovered something about myself as I was staring through looking for these little unseen organisms. I discovered that I'm, I think I'm more of a big picture kind of guy. <laughs> I think I'd rather kind of be a big picture kind of guy. And, uh, and not worry myself so much with the details, which my staff will absolutely attest to. Uh, so I surround myself with people who are good at details. And, uh, I, I, you know, I come back from the mountain and I tell them, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build the car or whatever. And they say, well, how are we going to do that? Tom? I have no idea. That's why you're here, actually. And so uh, I discovered that I'm a big picture kind of a guy. But as I was studying and praying about the book of Nahum this week, I, I felt like I was back in microbiology again. This is our stop number 31 in our, our Through the Bible uh, series. Um, and I noticed that as I was reading this and studying it, that I had a hard time finding, finding the thing that I was looking for, the hot spot. You know that thing each week where we just want to go and invite God? To s- Many times when I'm reading through the books of the Bible and pre- preparing for these, these teachings, uh, even if it's a small, minor prophet, I'll find several things that I think really qualify as hot spots. And I'm like, Lord, can we do this? Lord, can we do this? And I just wait and hear what his sense is for us. So it's usually a kind of a narrowing. This time it was like, Lord, is there anything in this book of Nahum that would qualify as a hot spot? Something that we could just trans- transmit from over centuries that would fit into our lives. Um, the good news is I found one, and it's a good one, but it was really hard because what I found, there are 47 verses in the book of Nahum, and 46 of them are committed to God's judgment on the city of Nineveh and how terrible it's going to be. 46 of the 47. I did find one in, in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 7, where the Bible says in Nahum 1, verse 7, the Lord is good a refuge in times of trouble, and he cares for those who trust in him. Now, that's a good word. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. He's a refuge in times of trouble, and he cares for those who trust in him. That's a really good word. But before we get to that too far, let's, let's lay our weekly groundwork by going to the context of this passage. And in, in order, I think, to really embrace that one verse that's a hot spot, in order to really get that, you really need to do yourself the favor of a, of a kind of a, a history lesson of where this thing fits in at all. And so we're going to kind of fly at 30,000 feet here and look at some of the history of Israel, and I'll show you where, where it fits in. We're going to start in 957 B.C., and that's when King Solomon built the first temple. You may remember in your Bible reading that King David, Solomon's father, wanted to build the temple, Right? He wanted to build it, and God said, no, that's not for you to build. That's for your son to build. And so David made preparations for it, but he didn't build it. 
Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, and that was a permanent structure compared to the thing that they used for centuries before that, which was what? The tabernacle, right. It was a tent, and the Ark of the Covenant was inside of it. But it was a very portable thing from the time of Moses, this thing called the tabernacle. And it was made according to the precise directions of God. It was treated and handled according to the precise directions of God. But this tabernacle could move as the people of Israel moved because they were semi-nomadic people. Well, by the time Solomon came along at this time, they had settled in Jerusalem, and so it was time to build a permanent, a permanent tabernacle, and that was called the temple. So if we start there, and then we jump ahead a few years, that at the end of Solomon's reign, his life, in 922 B.C., Israel and Judah split into two kingdoms. So they were once one kingdom, but at the end of Solomon's reign, there was dispute about who was going to be king, and so effectively a civil war ensued where there was a, a kingdom to the north called Israel and a kingdom to the south called Judah. So they split up, and now what was one was now two. Now the interesting thing is, is that as they were there, they sat sandwiched between Assyria to the north and Egypt to the south, and these were the two world powers. And Israel and Judah, once one, had now decided it was in their best interest to half their strength and to become two as they sat sandwiched between these two world powers. In 722 B.C., a couple hundred years later, Assyria conquered Israel. Their capital city of Israel, the northern kingdom, was Samaria, and they conquered that city. And what they did was they started carrying off Israelites to the capital city of Assyria, which was Nineveh. So this was the first deportation. And they, what they, they carried these people off to Nineveh to be slaves to them because they had conquered their city. And also what happened was that a number of the Israelites began running for cover. They moved from the northern kingdom. They were heading south to see if they could find protection from these Assyrians. These people were running away from a political enemy, and that made them what? Refugees. Exactly. They were refugees. So when you read this in, 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 in chapter 1, verse 7, uh, he is a refuge in times of trouble. When you read in Psalm 46, I think it is, that the Lord is our re- no, it's not Psalm 46. It's, the Lord is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. He's talking about refugees, about people who are on the move because they are being, they are being pursued. And so this is what happened in, in 722 B.C. And then in 612 B.C., the Babylonians became the major world power in the north, and they conquered the Assyrians. They conquered the Assyrians by taking its capital city, Nineveh. So catch this. You have Israelites who are in bondage in Nineveh because they had been conquered years before, and now the Babylonians, the Neo-Babylonian Empire under, under uh, Pelasser, what's his, what's his name, Pelasser or something like that, came in and they conquered they. They conquered. Does anybody know the answer to that? No, it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. It was. It was. He was before him. Was Nabopolassar? Actually, Nebuchadnezzar came later. And uh, but thanks for playing. Okay. <laughs> I think the important thing to realize is that in 612 BC, the balance of power shifts so that the new world power was not the Assyrians but the Babylonians. Now, 
as they took Nineveh over, they also captured everybody there who didn't flee, who didn't get away, including the Israelites. So they are there in Nineveh, okay? 587 B.C., you advance uh, forward, and you see that the Babylonians continued their expansion, and they took over Jerusalem, didn't they? They conquered Judah, and they carried off a whole bunch of the Jews into the Babylonian captivity. So now you have, you have the people of Israel in Nineveh enslaved. You have the people of Judah in Babylon enslaved. And then, uh, then they stayed that way until 539 B.C. when the Persians came and they conquered the Babylonians. So you see what's happening. The people of God, they're still enslaved. They just have new bosses. They, have a new, they just have new masters as all of this unrest was occurring in the, in the region. So they stayed, the, the people from Jerusalem stayed in Babylon for 70 years, and then in uh, 520 to 515 B.C., Ezra and Nehemiah found favor with the new kings, didn't they, by the, by the grace of God, and led uh, a pilgrimage, a return back to Jerusalem, where what did they do when they got there? They built the temple, they rebuilt the temple, which had been destroyed in, in 587, and, and, and then they rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem, but they did one more thing that was the most important thing that they did. And Ezra read the Word of God. And they read the Word of God. And so not only were they resettled in the place of God's choosing in Jerusalem, but the Word of God had come back, which was what the whole judgment was about in the first place. They had forsaken the Word of God. And so now they're back and uh, Ezra and Nehemiah lead through that time. And they stayed that way uh, until 333 B.C. when Alexander the Great pretty much took over the world, didn't he? And uh, he was uh, in the era of the, the great philosophers. Pretty sure he was a student of Aristotle. And uh, in, in his expansion, he pretty much took over the whole world, of what you kind of think of the world, that part of the world, and he introduced into that region something called Hellenism, which is the Greek concept of, of, of how to live. So that's the whole kind of scheme over hundreds of years. And it's important for you just to, just to kind of let that fix in your head for a minute because of what happens next. And that is, where did Nahum come in? Where did he come in? Well, he came in in 615 B.C., just three years before the fall of Nineveh. And Nahum's prophecy is directed to the Ninevites, saying God is going to come in terrible judgment on you as a city. There's, there, there's just going to be stuff like you could never even imagine. And 46 of the 47 verses are really dedicated to this terrible judgment that's going to come on the city of Nineveh, which it did because the Assyrians who were running it were about to be overtaken by the Babylonians. That the war was heating up, and Nahum's job was to tell them that God was coming in judgment on them and that there was going to be a change in the balance of power. Okay. Now, before we get too much farther, you might say, I think I've heard of Nineveh before. Yeah? With Jonah, right. It was just a few weeks ago, but I'm glad someone remembered. But Jonah went to Nineveh. He had kind of a hard time of it, right? 
the whole I'm not going, oh, yes, you are, that whole thing, the whole over the side of the ship being swallowed by a great fish, repenting and going, and for three days traveling through Nineveh saying that God is going to come in judgment, and they repented, right? They repented. Now, these are still, in Nineveh, these are still Gentiles. These are not Jewish people who are there. These are Gentiles. And so you might wonder, well, where did Nineveh, where did, where did Jonah come in this whole process? Well, he came actually much before all of this in 786 B.C. is when he came. I was kind of thinking about that, and I was wondering if Jonah's experience, the whole, I'm not going, oh, yes, you are, I wonder if that kind of greased the wheel for Nahum going, yep, I'm going. You know, <laughs> don't tell God no about, about Nineveh, whatever you do. But we have to understand something if we want to get, I think, the full impact of this hotspot verse. We have to understand that Nahum's prophecy was against Ninevites, who were substantially Gentiles, with the exception of somebody who was living there. Okay? So as we go to the hotspot, we see in chapter 1, verse 7, the Bible says, The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. That out of the 47 verses of severe judgment against Nineveh, we find one speck of hope. That in a, a book that is hard to read because of the power of its judgment, there is one shard of light that God deposited in there. And in order to get that, you've got to ask the question, why did he do that? Why, why would God have done that? In other words, who was that for? Who was that for when he's bringing all of this judgment on Nineveh? Who was that one verse of encouragement? The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. Who was that for? Who was still there? The Israelites. The Israelites were still there. And I think it just underscores the fact that though God had to bring this judgment on the city, he still had his heart for his people. And that there was still a remnant. There was still a remnant of the people of Israel who loved God in spite of the fact that they had been swept away by this judgment. You know, there's always a remnant. Have you been reading the Bible? There's always a remnant. There's always a people who say, I love God. I want God. I want to obey God. I want to live a righteous life. I want to experience God. I want to encounter the living God. There's always a remnant. No matter what the people of God are doing, whether it was Israel or the church, there's always a remnant of people like yourself who say, religion isn't enough. Remember, they had fallen into the place of just empty religion. They were just going through the motion. But in the midst of that, there were people going, this isn't enough. The church through history has had times of, of just terrible drought and coldness where people were just going through the motions. Just go to church to check off the box. Okay, I'll do the religion thing. But during those times, there's always been a remnant there's always been a people like yourselves who say, religion isn't what I'm hungry for. Religion doesn't do it. Your religion doesn't fit the hole that's in my life. Only God fits that hole. It's God that I want. 
and I won't give up until I eat from his table. That's the remnant. That stirring inside of you that goes beyond, I like this place because the people are nice and the pastor's sometimes funny. That, that sort of thing goes through your mind, I like the band, or I like that you don't have to dress up very much, or whatever it is you like. Beyond that, that will never hold you. That what you're after is the hunger inside of you that God says, that, that God has placed in there that you say, I just got to eat from his table. And so these people were living in Nineveh. And terrible judgment was going to come on the Ninevites. And God said this to them, to his people. The Lord is good. You're about to see something terrible happen. But in the midst of it, he says, the Lord is good. He's a refuge for those in trouble. He cares for those. He takes care of those who trust in him. That in the midst of that, he's still there. I want you to notice a couple things about that hot spot. And first has to do with the whole judgment thing. I want you to notice that it really is the goodness of God that completely justifies the judgments of God. You know, you read through the Old Testament, and, and don't you sometimes just go, dag, that's severe. I just need to tell you that the, Bi- the Bible says the Lord is good, and sometimes it can be hard to reconcile. Is that a good God who would come and destroy all of the people? Is that good? And I want to tell you that it's the goodness of God that justifies the judgments of God. It's the goodness of God that demands the judgment of God. It's because He's good that He must act in judgment or else He's no longer good. God is good. God is holy. His goodness and His purity are part of His holiness. So for Him not to act in judgment against what is evil would cause Him not to be God. It's His very goodness that brings about the judgment. It's because He knows what is good. You dads, why do you discipline your sons? Because you know what is good. You know what is good. They don't know yet. It is on you. It is on you, men, to discipline your sons. Not harshly, the Bible says. Not harshly. Why? Because you know what's good. It is your job to bring them up in what is good. Sometimes we say that the job of the parent is to teach the child between right and wrong. That's not it at all. It's to teach them the difference between good and evil. You know what is good, and so your discipline is required. Else how will they know? God is good. His judgments are demanded. Now thanks be to God that Jesus Christ died on the cross for us as our substitute, that He has taken all of our judgment, that all of the judgment that was due us because of our sin came on Christ. Came on Christ. Came on the volunteer. Came on the substitute. Came on the one who lived a perfect life, who had nothing that could be said against Him. But He gave His life for us to bear our judgment. 
But by being Christians, we're not saying that God no longer judges. We're saying that the judgment has been fully poured out on Jesus Christ who took that judgment, took that penalty. And so as we pass through the cross, we emerge on the other side without sin. Ephesians 1 says, without blemish, spotless and without blemish. How? By the mercies of Christ. But the judgment of God was still demanded. It was just paid for us. His wrath, as we just sang, is perfectly satisfied. But His wrath was poured out. And it's the goodness of God that demands judgment. It's going to be a day we're going to have our last heartbeat. And for those of your faith is in Jesus Christ, not messing around, not giving lip service, not checking off the church box, but for those whose faith is in Jesus Christ, your last heartbeat here will proceed into your first heartbeat in heaven because Jesus Christ will pay for your sin. You'll no longer be bound by your sin. It's, it's almost impossible to imagine what our life would be without the struggle of sin in it, isn't it? <laughs> but that's what Jesus did for us, and it was the goodness of God that demanded the judgment. It's the goodness of God. You know, why is this verse said in here that in all this judgment, the Lord is good? It's because it's His goodness that demands judgment or else He ceases to be good. The other thing I want you to notice about this that's so important for you is that when it comes to the goodness of God and living in a, in a sea of evil, that it only takes a speck of the goodness of God to change your life. That when you're living in a season of profound darkness, that it only takes just a shard of light. Just a bit of light, doesn't it? You just need some place to go in it, don't you? Some place you can cling. Something you can hold on to. A place you can just plant down and go, in, in spite of everything that's happening around me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to camp right here in the goodness of God. I'm going to camp right here in this darkness, in the light of God. The Bible says the Lord is good. He's a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in Him. So what you do when you discover that you're in a time of trouble is you put on the lenses and you start looking for the speck. You look for God. You look for just the speck of His goodness that's still there. Just the shard of light in the midst of such a dark time. And you just keep looking. I don't like microbiology either, but you just keep looking till you find it. You know, Nahum's name in Hebrew means comforter. Comforter. And then he lashes out with 46 verses of extreme judgment. This is a comfort because God is good. It is a comfort because in the midst of the judgment, the Bible says the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in Him. You know, there are a lot of you right now in our fellowship who are enduring 
difficult times. Some of you very, very difficult times. There are some of you who are trying to figure out how to navigate through some very unwelcomed changes that have happened. You don't know how it's going to be the same. And some of you are navigating through times of failed relationships where maybe a marriage broke up or maybe a relationship with a brother or sister in Christ just crashed. It's broken now, though you know it. You, you study the Scriptures. You plead with the Holy Spirit about, well, what should I do? What? It's a hard time, hard time for you. There are a lot of you, perhaps, who are living in a, in a time of uncertainty and that you're not sure what's going to happen next. You don't know, what's the next page? Where does this go? So you're nervous about that or anxious about it or even afraid of what the possibilities are on the next page. And you're, you're trying to navigate through that. And some of you are, are going through the time of very severe loss. You lost somebody. It's dark in there. You know, I officiated this year, or 2016, I officiated at three of the most difficult funerals of my nearly 40 years in ministry. Man, they were hard. And I just officiated them. I cannot imagine what it's like to be those of you who were there. You were family. You were the spouse. You were the... Well, Karen, I think we've been here much too long. I said I'm really having trouble with these funerals because I'm not burying church members anymore. I'm going to the funerals of my friends, and I'm expected to be the pastor. That's getting hard. And I'm just officiating. Some of you guys, are, you're the ones who who lost someone. So what do you do when you're in a time of, of, such, of such darkness and uncertainty? What do you do? Good word. The Bible says the Lord is good. A refuge in times of trouble. That he cares for those who trust in him. Good news is that God is here. He's, he's in that room somewhere. He said, but it's so dark. Search for the light. Search for the shard of light. Search for the thing you know to be true, the goodness of God. Search for it and stay there. Get there. Stay there, but search for it. Remember when Peter was walking on water when he thought it would be a good idea to walk to Jesus out on the lake? Remember that? And he got halfway and the waves were so high that he started to sink. Remember that? What did he do? He called out to the Lord. It says he looked instead of at the waves. He found the Lord in the storm. And he said, Lord, save me. He reached out his hand. He said, Lord, save me. What did the Lord do? 
Did the Lord say, you know, Peter, I would have thought you would have maybe thought about the consequences of your actions. You are, you are there as a result of your own bad decisions. You deserve to sink and drown. Is that what the Lord did? That's not the God of the Bible. The Lord reached out His hand, He lifted them up, and together they walked back to the boat. That was the cool of the day. So what do you do? You look for the light. You look for the Lord. You look for the goodness. You look for the one thing. And you camp there. You go there. This morning, two prophetic events happened out on the wall. Now, for those of you who are new, say, what's the wall? Well, so we have 18 acres of property here, and we have a path that goes all the way around the property. And since day one, since before we even built a building, we were walking that path and just praying and praying. And almost daily, we walk the path and just ask God's blessing on this place, ask His protection on this place, ask Him to do very exciting things here among us. So, so when, we, when we do that, we, we, we kind of see it kind of as like the wall around Jerusalem, and the Lord has met us there. And so when we do that, we call it walking the wall. We're going to go walk the wall. It means praying. Around. But I'm going to walk the wall because it sounds a lot more kind of studly. You know, I'm going to go walk the wall. You know, I walk the wall. Sometimes when I, in the day when I decide I'm going to go out and walk the wall, I'll press the Amanda button, and she's our receptionist. And I say, Amanda, just so she doesn't send calls back, just say, Amanda, I'm going to go walk the wall. I feel really powerful saying that. I'm going to go walk the wall. Sometimes I say, Amanda, you need me on that wall. Sometimes I say, you're glad that I'm on that wall. I eat my breakfast 500 yards from the business end of a Russian-made AK-47, and you want me on that wall. You're safer. You sleep better at night because I'm on that wall. Yes, you can handle the truth. Walk in the wall. It's never a more important time for me than to walk the wall than on Sunday mornings before anybody, before the church starts, you know. Because I prepare, obviously, to teach, you know, but I always like to leave. But what do you want to do to the last second? Because I don't want to plan it. I just kind of want to see what the Lord is up to. And I often get that by walking on the wall. So this morning I was out walking on the wall and I, uh, on the bridge over here, I ran into Pastor Paul, who was also walking the wall. He was on the bridge. I hadn't seen him all week because he was down in Cincinnati at seminary all week, and uh, so I hadn't seen him, so hey, I missed him. I gave him a hug, and we stood out there kind of leaning over the rail, kind of half talking and half praying. It's just really just kind of the way it rolls. And as we were leaning over the edge there, and it was just getting kind of light. It was still just a little bit dark, but you could see all the way to the edge of the property. I, I saw a coyote run across the corner of the property, and he was, man, he was moving. And I know how fast they can go because I shoot at them on my property, and they'll they kill a couple, and they'll go, baby. They can run when they know you don't want them there. And, and I saw a coyote just as we were praying for God to move in the church. Uh, a coyote run across. I said, you see that? He said, yeah. And then before that one was even off the property, a second one ran across. Whoop, whoop, and they were moving. And God stirred in my heart right there. 
And the Holy Spirit said, today I'm going to run predators out of people's lives. I'm going to run these predators out of people's lives. Some of you are living under the thumb and the tyranny of a predator called Satan. The Bible says he's a predator. It says Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And today is a day for God to run predators out of your life. The second prophetic event happened when I ran into Pastor Paul. On the other side, because we were going in opposite directions, and so you see how a circle works? <laughs> and so we were just both doing our thing, walking the wall and praying what we pray. And I saw Paul coming, and he saw me coming. I said, hey, I, you know, whatever we said. But he said, i got to tell you something. He said, I just feel like the Lord just spoke to my heart. And as we were walking in opposite directions, he said, I just felt like the Lord was using us to just tighten the wall and strengthen the wall around this place. Because, you know, it turns out if you want to tighten up a circle, you have to pull in opposite directions, right? Now you remember my buffer pad thing, you know? And if you want it to be strong, you really got to tighten it down. But you got to pull in opposite directions because if you pull in one direction, the string comes out and then you're in trouble. You've done that with your sweatpants, right? When you want to get around this circle, you've got to pull hard in opposite directions, right? That's how it gets stronger. And he said that. He said, I feel like our walk in opposite ways is just strengthening the wall. And then I told him something that kind of blew his mind a little bit. And I said, you know what, Paul? I said, for the last 15 years, I have walked this wall. How many thousands of times? I don't know. But I have always walked in the direction that you're walking. I always walked in that clockwise direction. And I said, but when you came here and I saw you and your love for the wall and prayer and praying for this place, I said, the Lord spoke very clearly to my heart. And he said, Tom, I want you to start walking the other way. It was hard for the first couple months because it was like, this is wrong. I, everything's in the wrong spot. And, but I did it just out of obedience to God, just walking the other way. I'm adapting. But he had no idea that it was when he came in August that the Lord spoke to my heart and said, I want you to walk the other way. And together, we're going to strengthen the wall around this place. So what's going on in here? This is the kingdom of God. God comes where his believers call out to him. So the sky is really the limit for what could happen in your life today. Father, we bow and invite the presence and move of your Holy Spirit to come.